Listener Production. Welcome to The Briefing. It is May 2. I'm Tom Tilly, joined by Jan Fran. Yeah, g'day, Tom. It's fair to say that few people expected trans women in sport to become an election issue. However, the offensive comments from Liberal candidate Catherine Deves have really brought it into the spotlight. Are you transphobic? Oh, of course not. This is a woman standing up for women and girls in sport. Some Liberals have called for her to be dumped as a candidate. I'm not going to allow her to be silenced. Yeah, so the politics around trans women in sport is getting quite messy, as you can hear there. The reality is this issue is actually handled by sporting codes, not by government. So in this episode of The Briefing, we're going to get into the science of transitioning and how that actually affects people playing sport. And we'll do that by interviewing an endocrinologist, or in other words, a doctor who specialises in hormone problems. I don't think trans women are a threat to women's sport. And this recent debate really is a storm in a teacup generated to incite hate, really, and incite fear. Yeah, you're going to hear from that doctor just a little bit later in the show. But first, as always, we go to the headlines. Let's see what's making news. All right, we're now halfway through the election and today's opinion polls show that Labor is hanging on to its lead. Yeah, halfway through already. It's going somehow both fast and very, very slow. But on a two-party preferred basis, um, today's news poll showed that Labor was ahead 53 to 47. Um, There was also another big poll out today uh, from Resolve Strategic for the nine papers. That poll also put Labor ahead 54 to 46. Um, Now, this comes as Labor held its official campaign launch in Perth yesterday. I will show up. I will step up and I will bring people together. I will lead with integrity and I will treat you with the respect that you deserve. Yeah, that's Albanese in Perth. So the promises they made were reducing the gender pay gap by making gender equity an objective of the Fair Work Act, cheaper medicines. Um, Labor says it will reduce the cost of drugs on the pharmaceutical benefits scheme by $12.50, making the maximum price for medicines $30.00. They also pledged to make it easier to make a home for 10,000 Australians, um, allowing them to get in with just a 2% deposit. And under this scheme, the government could own 40% of the house. The other thing that they put forward was a real support for electric vehicles. So Labor's planning to establish something called a Driving the Nation Fund, which is $500 million that'll go into investing in charging infrastructure. They also pledged to spend a billion dollars on local industry in resources and manufacturing. The other thing that Anthony Albanese did quite a lot of is criticise Scott Morrison in his speech. Um, he criticised Morrison for his response to the bushfire crisis. He criticised him over his vaccine rollout and basically said, this is what Morrison's pitching, is that the nation already knows who Morrison is. And I think Albanese's used that to his advantage by saying, exactly, you know who Morrison is and he's somebody who, using his own words, doesn't hold a hose or doesn't think that certain things are his job, so vote for me. Yeah, and there was a couple of zingers from Jason Clare. So this is the shadow minister who stepped in for Albo when he was off sick last week. Here's uh, some of his attempts to um, yeah, land a few zingers. This bloke is all tinsel, no tree, and thinks climate change is what happens when you check out the April sun in Cuba. What do you make of those, Jan? Pretty strong zingers. 
Uh, you know, look, they attracted a lot of attention. I was following this yesterday and um, quite a lot of people on Twitter were talking about Jason Clare. I know Twitter is not the, the mark of what's going on in the country, but they were certainly headline grabbing, put it that way. The thing is, all of this is still a challenge um, for Labor and, and polls will peak and they will wane and I'm sure we will report on them when they do. But we have to bear in mind that Labor has only formed government from opposition just three times since the Second World War. So if Albanese wins this, it'll make it a fourth. And Ukraine President Vladimir Zelensky has thanked Australia for its support and apologised. Well, I, I have to be uh, only very thankful to Australian people that you, 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 you helped us already, and, and it's true, and, and, but we need more. It's also true. I'm sorry, I'm the president of war country. That was Zelensky speaking on 60 Minutes last night. He actually gave that interview from inside of his bunker. Um, now, 100 people have been evacuated from the Russian-controlled port city of Mariupol. Um, this is after they were holed up in a steelworks plant there for at least 10 days. Yes, several hundred civilians, dozens of wounded soldiers and approximately 2,000 Ukrainian combatants are still trapped in the tunnels under that plant that still works there. So these are the people that are trying to get out through that humanitarian corridor. And over to the United States now where President Joe Biden has spoken at the annual White House Correspondents' Dinner. This is a dinner that's famous for people roasting each other, roasting the media, roasting the president. It hasn't been attended by a president, though, for six years because Donald Trump refused to go. And then, of course, there was the minor thing called the COVID-19 pandemic, which saw the event cancelled two years in a row. Well, here's Biden having a go at being a comedian. We had a horrible plague followed by two years of COVID. <laughs> Speaking of zingers, yeah, I, I think the um, the sense with Trump was that he didn't really um, have much of a sense of humour when the jokes were on him. So there, Biden's back to this uh, tradition, and part of that uh, involves talking about the importance of journalism in the American democracy. Here's what he said about that. The free press is not the enemy of the people. Far from it. At your best, you're guardians of the truth. Yeah, there you go. Speaking very highly of the journalists there, because of course the room was um, filled with journalists. That's who it's meant to be for. But there were also a lot of celebrities there. Kim Kardashian, Pete Davidson, her new beau, Brooke Shields, Caitlyn Jenner, all the big names. And there's been some big news on the Olympics front. Firstly, two new sports could be admitted ahead of the Brisbane 2032 Games. I think cricket is, it, it, it adds into a long line. And, and right now we could even throw in virtual sports. Virtual sports? My God, this this could, I mean, there's just hope for us all yet. Virtual sports for anyone who doesn't know is <laughs> things like video games. I say that with an inflection in my voice. Can you please confirm, Tom? <laughs> yeah, esports, um, which are huge, by the way, but that would really change the nature of the Olympics, which, you know, in many ways are so traditional. So that was Kirsty Coventry, who's the commission chair of the International Olympic Committee. So that's interesting. The other news was that Australia's Olympic Committee president of 32 years, John Coates, has officially stepped down, leaving behind a fairly solid legacy. With a full heart, I thank you uh, for giving me the chance 
to live mine. Thank you. Yeah, very emotional there, John Coates. You can hear it in his voice, and I guess so he should be because he's leaving behind a pretty big legacy. He's the only Olympic Committee president to bring an Olympics to his home country twice, and he did that at the beginning of his career with Sydney in the year 2000, and he's ending it on a high with Brisbane in 2032. And he's going to be replaced by Ian Chesterman, um, who served as the AOC's vice president and chef de mission for seven Winter Olympic teams. So um, all the best for him taking on the job as we head towards the Brisbane Olympics. And speaking of sports, we're talking about trans women in sports. That's coming up next. Women and girls should have the right to have a dedicated female sports category for player safety and fair competition. That was the Liberal Party candidate for the Sydney seat of Warringah speaking to SBS News there. Uh, Ms Catherine Deaves, she was handpicked by Scott Morrison, has been in the spotlight for offensive comments that she's made and since deleted about the trans community. Yeah, she says she's protecting women's sport, but her critics say she should be disendorsed and that she's using the sports debate as a veil for bigotry. Let's go from the politics now to a bit more of the science with Dr Ada Chung. She's an endocrinologist and the founder of the Trans Health Research Group at the University of Melbourne. She's an expert in hormone therapy and its impact on the body. That's why we're chatting to her. Ada, thank you so much for joining us on The Briefing. How do you feel about this issue coming up in the context of a federal election? I actually think that um, trans people have been put in the middle of a debate that is unnecessary at the moment. It's a debate that's being created to divide the community and incite sort of strong opinions from, uh, from certain sectors of the community, which is hurting the trans community significantly from a mental health perspective. This isn't a new debate. No sporting organisations have come out supporting the Save the Women's Sports Bill that was put up by Claire Chandler. I don't think there's been extensive consultation from the government with national sporting organisations or community groups to see whether this is actually an issue on the ground. Yeah, well, that's the strange thing about this debate. This exists largely within the the domain of the sporting authorities themselves. As you say, they're not jumping up and down saying we need the laws changed, which is what you're talking about there. There's a bill, a private member's bill from a Liberal senator in Tasmania wanting to change the discrimination laws that I guess the sporting bodies operate within. How well do you think the sporting bodies have gone so far in dealing with this issue about trans women in women's sport? Sports Australia most certainly have released sort of guidelines for the inclusion of trans and gender diverse people in sport in Australia in 2019. And this is really an extensive document that has engaged with sporting organisations and large members of the community and stakeholders. And in addition to the Sports Australia guideline, most of the individual sporting organisations have got this issue covered. Most of them have got, you know, guidelines regarding how they handle someone who's transgender and is participating at an elite sport level and will make their own individual assessments. I think it just shows that none of the sporting organisations have come out calling for a need to change current legislation. There's already the Sex Discrimination Act and the Sex Discrimination Act already allows for discrimination 
based on strength, stamina or other parameters if it's relevant for that sport. So what do some of these sporting codes take into account when they're developing their policies? Because a lot of people I think have assumptions about trans women athletes, namely that they have a physical advantage over cisgendered women. But you say that that assumption isn't always backed by the evidence. So what does the science say when it comes to the sporting abilities of trans women? And are sporting codes drawing on that science to develop their policies? There is very little research about trans people. What we do know is that, say, a trans woman who's been through male puberty starts feminising hormone therapy. They do lose muscle mass. They gain fat mass. They lose bone density. They drop their haemoglobin, which is the oxygen-carrying red blood cells, to the female range. And that's important for endurance. And, you know, you will have heard of um, like Lance Armstrong blood doping, and that's to increase this haemoglobin and red blood cells to improve performance. And so trans women have the opposite. So their red blood cells drop. And the tricky thing is we know these things happen, but dropping muscle mass doesn't correlate with strength or performance or fitness. And so there's been no good research studies that have adequately followed trans women and compared them to control groups that have adjusted for any other interfering factors like someone's height because the amount of muscle someone has depends upon their height as well as other factors. And so the research isn't clear I admit that it's possible that there is a potential performance advantage that trans women may have because the research isn't clear. So there hasn't been any studies looking at elite athletes. It's possible that someone with a larger stature may have an advantage for some sports, but it's also possible that someone with a large stature but smaller muscle mass might be at a disadvantage. And so I often use a car analogy like, you know, four-wheel drive and a hatchback, but the four-wheel drive is being powered by a hatchback engine. Like it might look powerful, but the performance doesn't match the appearance and it might be better to have a hatchback. The really interesting case from America that sparked a lot of intense debate, which is the swimmer Leah Thomas. Now, she dominated the college championships this year, but was ranked much lower before transitioning. Since she dominated in the pool this year, USA Swimming has changed the rules basically tightening the rules on transgender women's eligibility and they'll now have to sustain testosterone levels under five nanomoles for three whole years before being able to compete against cisgendered women. So what do you think about that change in the rules there? Does it show that they had the rules wrong before or does it just show that we're we're still learning and adapting as, as more evidence comes to light? Yeah, we are still learning and we are still adapting. And because there is no research to suggest, okay, you need to have a testosterone less than 10 or you need to have a testosterone less than 5, it's very hard to make decisions. And so often sporting organisations are making individualist decisions, like they might assess an individual person based on their individual characteristics. But I think media does often report that Leah Thomas is dominating US college swimming. And often that is an assumption based on looking at her face or looking at her body and her height. If you actually have a look at, for example, her recent 500-yard freestyle time, Mm. you know, it was 4 minutes and 33 seconds, which is actually slower than 
the NCAA, the National College Athletics Association, record of four minutes 24 and also slower than the defending champion, Brooke Ford, who, you know, swam four minutes 31. So whilst it says that she's dominating, she's actually swimming well within the range of someone, of her female competitors. Interesting you get into the detail on the Leah Thomas example. What do you think of the way the swimming authorities responded to it? Do you think they, they shouldn't have changed the rules or do you think the rule changes they made uh, make sense? I think testosterone, having a set testosterone level is a reasonable target because testosterone is actually a lot of the main driver of a lot of the athletic performance. It drives the haemoglobin, the red blood cells, it drives the muscle mass. And so having testosterone targets, I think is a reasonable thing. How long? people should have met those targets, Mm. the research isn't clear. So, you know, studies Mm. have shown that at three years, changes are still continuing. One of the things that is pretty clear here that um, that you keep emphasising is that there really does need to be more research in this area. So where exactly do we need to be focusing our time and our money and our energy as a society to research this field so that sporting bodies can develop better policies to govern transgender athletes? We need to be listening to the community and we need to be listening to the sporting organisations. We need to be listening to the trans community. We need to be listening to pride in sport. What we need is longitudinal research that follows trans women and trans men over time from beginning of hormone therapy and we need adequate comparison groups. So we need to compare, um, you know, changes with what happens in cisgender or people who are not trans men and women. The tricky part will be getting enough numbers to get good data because there's very, very few trans people playing sport. And and that's the huge issue because of um, huge barriers. One of the research studies by the Human Rights Campaign Foundation found that, you know, about 70% of high school students participate in sport, 28% of LGB students, but only 12% of trans girls participate in sport because they fear discrimination because of the huge mental health challenges that the trans community face, often because of discrimination. You know, over 70% have depression and quite an alarming 43% have attempted suicide in the past. It is such a tricky balance. As you say, the case for inclusion at a sort of a local community amateur level is very strong to support those people to enjoy the benefits of sport. It's just so much trickier at the elite level. And as you say, we're still collecting data and understanding more about the true impacts of transitioning yeah. and, and that throws open that question of where, the, where we get the balance right at the elite level. If there is a grey area, do we err on the side of inclusion or at the elite level, should it be erring on the side of protecting women's sport from unfair advantage? You know what? We need to be doing everything to break down barriers for trans people to exercise. If you look at say the Olympics, which is the highest elite level of since they've had the um, transgender guidelines in 2003, there's been like about 71,000 Olympians. Only two of them of that 71,000 were trans women. So trans people aren't competing in general at the elite level. To put themselves out there, they face enormous amounts of hate and and abuse. And, you know, of those two trans women, one of them came last and the other came 37th out of 42. And so certainly they're not dominating and they're not posing a threat to women's sport. And 
I think we need to be focusing on other things such as like the pay gap between women's and men's sport and sexual assault in elite women's sport and and other issues. And I, I don't think trans women are a threat to women's sport. And this recent debate really is a storm in a teacup generated by some people to incite hate really and incite fear unfortunately trans people who are really vulnerable from a mental health perspective are caught in the middle and this is harming the community because I see trans people every day we know that the LGBT mental health services they're experiencing the highest demand they've had like ACON Health in New South Wales in in nearly 40 years we need to protect our community and everyone in our community, particularly the most vulnerable. That was endocrinologist Dr Ada Chung. Yeah, one of the things that stood out to me among many in that interview was just how much the research is really lacking in this area and how much more there is for scientists and for experts to really explore because it's so nuanced and we're still really in early days. Yeah, which is why I think it's understandable for people to be debating how the sporting codes manage this tricky issue at elite level but I think people when they're weighing in on that debate should be well one dignified but also sensitive to how intense and how sensitive this is for people who are transgender and not to use it as a political football or another battle in the culture wars keep it on on science and you know a respectful debate about how to deal with it in elite sport yeah I think if between Catherine Deves and Dr Ada Chung on this, I'm probably always going to err on the side of listen to an endocrinologist who's been working with trans people over someone with political ambitions. That's just me. All right, tomorrow on The Briefing, to mark the halfway point in the election campaign, we'll be checking in with our very own Annika Smithhurst. Listener.